Hi, thanks. My name's Billy. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, after that last performance, I'm caffeining up so I can, you know, <laughs> keep the pace. It's uh, really good to be here tonight. It's always an honor and a privilege to be at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. First thing I want to say is that uh, Bobby C. is a very, very, not only a great member of AA, but he's a, he's a personal near and dear friend of mine. Um, I only arranged to come here a couple of weeks ago, um, and um, he really wanted to be here. And I actually talked to him on the way here, and, uh, you know, he, he sent his regrets. Um, his mouth is wired, and believe me, I was in New Jersey on business about two weeks ago, and I said, boy, I'm never going to chance to talk to Bobby like this again without him saying a word back. I'm going to see him. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you this, I'm here to share my experience, strength, and hope tonight. I have a lot of opinions about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll steal a line from Bobby. I'll be glad to stay up all night in the hospitality room and tell you all the opinions I have. But that's not what this podium's for. I'm here to share my experience. If it sounds like an opinion, it's only something that I've either personally witnessed or went through. Otherwise, I really have no business talking about it. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, that's really the bottom line. I, you know, I suffer from the hopeless state of mind and body, which very simply for me means is I have a body that won't die and a mind that doesn't work. And that's a very, very, very dangerous combination. And uh, I'm not here to compete in drunkologues or drinking stories or we're all here because we're all not here. That's what I heard a long time ago. Maybe you'll identify with me. Maybe you won't. Um, I know this. If you're sitting here tonight and you think you don't like me because I have a suit and tie on. I appreciate and respect you're not liking me because of that. But I love you. Because I am the guy who sat in any kind of meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and judged the speakers, judged the other people in the rooms. If I saw you in a suit and tie, I would probably believe that you probably didn't drink that much. When I first came to AA, I didn't believe most of you drank at all like I did. Um... I wear a suit and tie because I respect the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I know what it's like to sit there and think, boy, that guy doesn't look like he ever drank. And uh, I'm just going to share a couple of things that really... I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 15 years old, and I am not 21 years sober. So that means I had a hard time digesting a few of the relatively basic concepts of this program. Not drinking being one of them, obviously. Uh, that'll interfere with digesting this program. Um, but I had a few difficulties with a few things. Um, I had a real, real problem with my closed mind. And one of the things I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is no matter how perfect your hearing is, if your mind is closed, you can't hear. It doesn't matter. And the problem that I had for a long time is that if you were a woman, what could you know about how it is to be Billy? If you were gay, if you were black, if you were Jewish, if, 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 if. Like, there's not enough Irish Catholic morons where I got sober who are going to sit down, you know, I mean. But here's the paradox in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've ran into hundreds and thousands of Irish Catholic jackasses just like me. But you know what? I've heard my story told out of the most surprising people 
that you could ever imagine. But that's only possible after you open your mind up a little bit. See, because if I kept waiting to only listen to people who look just like me from the podium, I would have been waiting and drinking and waiting and drinking because I've seen people who look nothing like me, were raised in circumstances that have nothing in common with me, who got up there and told my story. And, um, you know, my story is not unique. Um, I suffer from alcoholism. It's funny, I... I blatantly lied to the Al-Anon speaker today before I knew she was a member of Al-Anon. Um, O'Hare was rather joyful this afternoon, and um, my flight was canceled, and I had four hours to kill, and at one point, you know, I'm staking out with the rest of the people who can, fi- who can fight over the next available outlet to plug your laptop in to, you know, there's only so many outlets there, and finally I had enough of that, and I said, I'm going to get a seat. And I sat down, and I sat down next to her, and she was talking to another woman, and everyone's going to Sioux Falls praying that there's going to be a plane coming here, and she says, well, what are you going to Sioux Falls for? And I just said, business, and that was it, and the subject, you know? I don't know her, I live in that city, I'm going there for business. And about five minutes later, I hear her talking to this person going, well, that's the forum, and AA's version of that is called the grapevine, and I'm saying to myself, I'm saying, oh, she's talking about the forum, and she's going to Sioux City. I said, you must be going to the Empire Roundup. So we've been together now the next couple hours, and, um, you know, I'm glad today that it's service to come here. Because I'll admit that when you speak at a conference, big meeting, whatever, it can mess with your ego. It's messed with mine many times. But, you know, I got up early this morning to go to work early because that's what I'm taught I'm supposed to do. You know, I took a day off, a half day, but I still have responsibilities at work. And I actually went in early and went to the gym this morning, and it was good to realize, God, I'm dreading going to the airport. It's it's good for personally me that it's work to have to get to the airport and come here, that it's not totally ego-fed. Um, because there was a time you asked to come up and do this a couple of times when it can really mess with your head. And, um, and I suffer from alcoholism, you know. Yeah, I have a, a terrible drinking problem. I don't want to put that to the side, but I suffer from alcoholism. It's in this body today as bad some days as it was 20, 30 years ago. I don't even like that I can say 30 years ago anymore, Um, but I can now. Uh, How bad is it in my body, and what kind of drinker was I, and where did this all start, and um, how did Alcoholics Anonymous save my life? Um, You know, I tell this quick little story because for me getting sober... The men who saved my life never answered my questions. They, they, would, they, would, they would spin these stories in, you know, Denny's and diners, and um, nothing was a straight answer. Everything was well, and, um, but here's a Billy story about how bad I suffer from alcoholism. I've had a couple of knee surgeries the last couple of years, and I'm a fierce competitor. Been since I've been a small kid. Still um, not only a fierce competitor, but even playing softball at 10 years sober, I can appreciate a guy who packs the beer right even though I'm not drinking, you know? I mean, that's the quality of my sickness, you know? Even though that I'm not drinking, I can still, I can still appreciate the guy on the team who's packed the beer the proper way. Um, but I made a deal with my doctor. I told him I wasn't going to play softball anymore. Or he said, you shouldn't play softball anymore, and I said, okay. And I was going to this AA picnic, and I was walking down Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, and 
I'm walking towards a picnic because we had a park far away and I see the picnic and I see the people from the fellowship and in the middle of the picnic I see what I can make out to be a baseball diamond. And I love baseball. And uh, as I'm walking closer to the AA picnic, my mind is saying, well, you know, he wasn't talking about pickup games. He was talking about league. That's really what he was talking about. You know, my whole story drinking is that I like to go out and get hammered. I don't know how to say it any other way. I don't know how to social drink. Never have. Don't understand it. But I like to get hammered. I grew up listening to Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath and getting hammered and more hammered and more hammered until I finally passed out. And um, my drinking story is this. I am capable of having 11 hours and 55 minutes of nothing but tragic circumstances occur during my 12-hour drinking period. And this brain in my body the next day is able to appreciate that five minutes that was so worth that 11 hours and 55 minutes of sheer pain and suffering that I can't wait to do it again. I mean, that's the kind of drinker I am. When I wake up the next day, I do not look back at the scratches, the stitches, where I'm banned from, the police. I look back at those couple of victories I had the night before that really make this all worth it. And uh, as I was walking towards that baseball field that day, 10 years sober, I uh, had that thought. He was talking about league. And uh, when we chose up teams, I wound up in left field, probably not a place I should be. And um, the guy was up at bat, and I immediately didn't like him. Why? Because he looked like he could be better at me than this. Now, drinking is one of the first things that I really was better than most people around me at. And I like to be better at things. I really do. Well, the guy up at bat looked like he could be better than me. And he hit a routine fly ball that anybody knows should have dropped once on the ground, right behind second base, bounced once into my mitt, with an easy throw to the second baseman to hold the runner at first. Anyone that's played baseball for two weeks knows that. Except my brain, I have a five-second problem sometimes. And sometimes it's found, especially in the sixth and seventh step, I rarely take time to think about consequences when I'm engaged in actions. And when that ball was hit, see, my brain snapped. I didn't see the ball bouncing off the ground nicely into my mitt with the easy throw. I killed myself because I had to catch that ball. Now, mind you, as I was walking back to my car that night, two miles from this AA picnic, limping, my leg killing me, the only thought that ran through my mind was, boy, that might have been one of the greatest catches I've ever made, and it was worth all the pain. You know? I mean, that was the only thing that ran through my mind. And I was joking about it not too long ago that at my home group not <laughs> last summer, some guy how to make, make things even worse. He said, you know what, Billy, that catch you made that day was one of the greatest catches I've ever seen, you know? Which is kind of like the people who drank with me used to say. You know, Billy, when you threw that mug right into the stack of liquor behind the bartender's head was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a night of drinking. You know? It reinforces what I think is why people want to hang out with me, why people want to be with me. You see, but I'm not here because I'm Irish Catholic and I'm not here because I got raised in a bad home. Um, my home had some problems. 
There's no doubt about that. I mean, I heard somebody say recently, and I thought it was very funny, that they were raised in a completely normal home by two raging alcoholics. And I said, <laughs> makes sense to me. I was raised by a raging alcoholic Irish Catholic narcotics cop with an untreated Irish Catholic mom, Alanon. And I was raised in a home that was violent. And I was raised in a home where the only rule was whatever happens, the house stays in the house. I was, and when I talk about this, that house didn't make me an alcoholic. But you see, I learned the hard way in Alcoholics Anonymous that um, I learned a lot of bad life skills there. I learned a lot of bad solution tools, I guess you could call them. And even when I put down a drink, the only solution tools I had were what I learned in that house. And you see, I made the mistake of listening to people early on who told me that, oh, all you have to do is drink and go to, not drink and go to meetings and, you know. And what I learned is, is I learned some messed up rules about living growing up. And, uh, you know, I learned what it's like when you tell somebody on the bus stop what happened in the house two nights before because that kid on the bus stop tells his mother who tells your mother who tells your dad who kicks the living you know what out of you because you're not supposed to tell what goes on in the house and the other rule in my household is I have 42 first cousins so there's lots of aunts and uncles and lots of people and lots of alcoholism but we don't use the word alcoholism or alcoholic we might use a lot of other code words we have a lot of other things we talk about High stress job, laid off, management sucks, depressed, other problems, always had a tough life. Those are all acceptable. Labeling someone an alcoholic or, al or their symptoms as alcoholism would be kind of like describing a good percentage of the family. So it's just not done and it's just not talked about. And the other rule that I was given was, you know, as long as you just drink, it's okay. As long as you don't put it in your arm, snort it up your nose, or smoke, it's okay. Those are very, very dangerous instructions for an alcoholic of my type. And, uh, you know, my mom and dad I recently buried in the last two years, and, and I, I love them both very dearly. And, um, you know, but I'm not somebody who grew up one day and all of a sudden said, oh my God, I'm going to become my dad. Um, my dad didn't make me an alcoholic, but I wanted to be him. And the funny thing is, I looked up to my dad. I had been to the top secret medal ceremonies with the mayor where they give the undercover narcotics people their medals because they can't get them in a regular medal ceremony. And I saw them put those on my dad and I'd been out with my dad and he was a, 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 you know, a leader of men. And um, I always wanted to be everything about my dad except the drinking. From a young age, I knew that. From a young age, I knew that when dad was drinking, there was trouble. So it's amazing to me that when, even with all that warning signs, and I was destined, I believed in my heart that I knew that our family was destroyed by alcohol. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of people here. I mean, when you have 42 Irish Catholic first cousins, a good percentage of your life in the springtime becomes like baptism, Chris, uh, baptism christening, confirmation, baptism, back to christening. It's like in every weekend event. There's one cousin having one of those three things go on during the springtime. And in my family, you only have to go to one to go to all of them. 
because they never change. And that doesn't make me an alcoholic, but I learned a lot of neat things there. I learned that men go to a room where there are no women, they get a TV that can get sports in decently, they have cards and chips, and they get a young kid to bartend. And I learned that usually at the end of the night there would be some kind of brawl involving my mother or another aunt who was telling somebody that they were not okay to drive. And see, I knew all this. And um, I couldn't wait to be part of it. And on the other hand, I knew how bad alcohol was. But the whole thing about drinking, I mean, it called out to me. I don't know how anybody else looks to it. By the time I went to a bar, a real bar, when I was of drinking age, I knew the whole bar etiquette mentality. I had been going to American Legion halls and Patrick's Pub and lots of places like that. By the age of 10, I knew an upside-down shot class and knew you had a free drink coming. I knew that if your, your bartender didn't give you every third drink free, you were drinking in the wrong place. I knew how to play pool. I knew how to play nine ball. I knew how to play darts. I knew how to bet on, on games with points. I knew all that stuff before I even picked up a drink. And I loved bars before I even picked up a drink. And I was given some very bad advice about what it means to be a man. And, um, you know, if you talked to me 12 years ago, I would say, well, hey, it has nothing to do about that. Well, I can tell you the definition, definition I was given on what a man is, where I come from, from my dad and his friends and my uncles. A man never deposits his paycheck in a bank account. That's rule number one. You either cash it at the bar, you have a tab in, a check cash in place, and you give your wife some kind of allotted amount of money. But a man does not never deposit his check into a bank account. Number two, a man does not volunteer for Boy Scouts or coach for Little League or do anything like that and does not return home usually for a day or two after being paid. Those are men. Where I grew up, who aren't men? Men that volunteer for Boy Scouts and Little League. Men that deposit their checks in bank accounts. The men that I was raised by would tell me that those men have given in. They've caved. And... Um, you know, I love my dad to the day he died. Um, but I was given some really bad living instructions from a young age. And what happened to me is no different than I'm sure what happened to a lot of people. Things were not good in the house that didn't make me an alcoholic. I searched out every possible way to not be home in that house. Boy Scouts, sports, friends' houses, everything. And no matter where I went, I took Billy with me. And something very magical happened one night. What happened one night is the following, and I can't talk about first drink because in my family, it's hard to qualify what that means. Being at Yankee Stadium, splitting a beer with your dad is not a first drink. That's splitting a beer with your dad that you told not to tell your mom about. I mean, where I come from, you know, that's just not the first drink. When I talk about my first drink, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing I'm going to the high school football party. Being in the back of an old Chevelle, a Nova, a Cutlass, pulling in front of a 7-Eleven, getting my own eight-pack of Budweiser shorties, going somewhere to drink them, and realizing, oh my God, what I have been searching out the entire time to forget that my parents are the only divorced family on the block, to forget that my dad's a lunatic, to hate and stop hating being Billy, all the things I've tried before, I found it. I have found the answer. 
And I don't know if anyone else had that kind of epiphany, but I had that epiphany. I realized that drinking worked. I realized I was better at it than most of the people my age. I realized that one drink made me feel good, two made me feel better, and I like to feel better. I um, also realized from the beginning that I had a big tolerance for alcohol. Um, I didn't understand what other people were amused by my age. Um, at 15 years old, I, I like these wood podiums because they remind me of two things. They remind me of bouncing quarters off somebody's parents' kitchen table into a shot glass. Or they remind me of an old-fashioned fingerprint stand where they lock it down with the metal piece and they roll the ink and they, you know. I mean, now they have electronic scan. It's not as drawn out a process now. But, you know, for those of us that have been there, I'm going to guess, I'm not the only one. You know what it's like. They take the handcuffs off and they roll across with that roller. And um, Here's what Billy didn't like about drinking games. You don't got to point at me to drink. Telling me to drink isn't a punishment. You getting a quarter and a shot glass and pointing your finger at me, telling me to drink, I hate this game. I like to drink on my own. I like to drink fast. I like to drink until I can't drink anymore myself. I don't like these games. And, you know, doing a lot of not only inventories, but as your mind gets clearer and you look back, you know, I know I was an alcoholic at that age. There's no doubt about it. But I also know now that there are certain things, you know, that I can look back at that other kids didn't have. Were they heavy drinkers? Probably. They binge drink? I guess so. But here's the difference I know between me and the guys I grew up with, because I've talked to some of them about it. I can be going to a keg party with ten half kegs. I can be with five guys in the back of that same car still listening to Ozzy or Sabbath. If I do not get to stop to bring an emergency six-pack that I hide conveniently in the bushes somewhere around the neighborhood of that party, I have a panic attack, or whatever you want to call it. I can't fathom going to a place with a hundred kegs without knowing that I have an emergency stash. I know that at 16 years old, when I'm drinking in your parents' house, and I go to grab one of my Michelobes or whatever I'm drinking that night out of your mother's refrigerator, I know somewhere down through that night, I start to take two. Because I'll put one up in her Tupperware drawer. And I'll put one down where she puts her tinfoil. Because I can't have beer run out or alcohol run out in a social setting like other people can. Those other people, the kegs are empty. It doesn't seem to drive them crazy. I've walked like three miles in the freezing cold, left the party, can't find my jacket, don't care. Kegs are out. They're all watching Pink Floyd the Wall at three in the morning. I need more beer. I mean, that's the kind of drinker I am. And, you know, I started getting into trouble at a little bit of an early age. And um, the school counselors said I had bad conflict resolution skills and Poor conflict resolution, um, uh, you would call them role models, you know. Um, and I started getting into some trouble. And um, I was a good student, but I was also a student who didn't really need to study to do good. So I, I didn't like to do any work. And I had a bad attitude. And um, 
as time went on, my drinking on Friday and Saturday nights was now Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we all know the progression that goes through. And, um, you know, the first time I went to treatment, it was outpatient. I had gotten arrested. And I was enabled many times because of my dad's position in the community in law enforcement. And um, many nights my keys were thrown or I was driven home or whatever. But one night I got arrested. I pushed it. And um, here's how arrogant this alcoholic is. I sat in this Catholic Charities building in outpatient treatment looking around at 15 guys who were all in their 30s and 40s and the only thought that came across my mind was there is no way at 30 or 40 years old I'm going to be a loser like one of these guys. I will never be in treatment. Now, I had never thought to think Billy, what a loser you must be that you beat these guys here by an average of 15 years. That thought had never come through my mind. I had never really thought that thought one bit. Um, now, what I liked about that treatment program was a couple of things. One, a lot of the guys, they were still drinking. And uh, they got me into bars and I was underage. The other thing I learned there is how important for a guy like me, an alcoholic of my type, it is to learn the lingo of AA. I never realized how important that is. See, because I noticed that the guys who threw out certain things, they got treated like Gandhi. They didn't get picked on like I did. They would throw out things like, well, I went to a beginner's meeting and a step meeting on Saturday night. They would throw out things like, I went to the, I went to the meeting after the meeting. They would throw out things like, I'm in a big book study and I'm doing this. And what I learned is, is that for an alcoholic of my type, I would run into situations over the next couple of years where that lingo, even though I wasn't drinking, became very useful. Probation officers, task officers, social workers. You know, and it's funny because two of my best friends in sobriety are criminal defense attorneys who are sober a long time. And, and they say it's amazing the people they represent and they know their stories and they'll sit there listening to what they're saying to a probation officer and they'll say to themselves, we are the most amazing, manipulative, cunning, baffling people in the world. Um, I mean, we can do anything. And, uh, and I learned a couple of those tricks. And um, I became the son that you explained why he wasn't at a wedding. You explained why he wasn't awake. And, you know, I'm not here to say I had a lot of bad times. Because I, well, I'm not here to say I had no good times. Because I had some really good times. Um... And you know what? Some of those good times I've had better in sobriety, doing the same things without drinking. And I'll get to a little of that. But uh, I didn't know how to not drink. And I couldn't fathom putting a drink down and getting rid of my best friend. And as my life went on, I would be in and out of AA. And, um, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. And I, I got a job. I became a civil servant. And um, that's what my dad wanted me to do. And... Uh, you know, I drank. I drank a lot. I actually, I worked for a different agency at the county, and I actually wound up working for one of my dad's old, like, uh, one of my dad's old guys that worked for him, and he pulled me aside one time. I was 22 years old and said, Billy, I don't care, but if you are out of control like your dad, you will never last working for me. Now, I looked at him like, out of control? What are you talking about? Last week, my boss... 
made me talk to someone who left an hour early on Friday on payday and didn't show up on Monday. And it was amazing that I'm having this talk with somebody, me. And they're looking at me with the same baffled look like, what's wrong with leaving an hour or two early on payday and not showing up three days later? I mean, it was like talking to myself. I said, boy, this is like a mirror. This is unbelievable that I am telling someone that that's not acceptable behavior. Um, But I started to go down that path. You know, I only know how to go out drinking every night until I can't, until I don't, can't drink anymore. The only thing I can safely tell you about what happens to this alcoholic after the first drink is the second. That's it. I can't tell you anything else. I can safely tell you that if I have one drink, I will have the second. And, um, you know, I'm the kind of guy who likes to get up at about 3.30 in the afternoon to work a 4 to 12 shift if I'm getting up on time that day. I like to stumble out to the local 7-Eleven buy a fresh pack of Newports, a Nestle's Crunch Bar, and an iced tea because my throat's killing me. I mean, that's my breakfast of champions at 3.30 in the afternoon to start the work day off right to work a 4 to 12 shift. Um, I never realized there was anything wrong with that or that I had any problem. I never realized that when I got paid, half my paycheck was already owed to pay off my bar tab. You know, I, I never realized that most other people... Um, where I drank was like sanctuary. I mean, there were certain bars that never wanted to see me again. But I'm sure there are some other alcoholics here where there was probably a bar or two that you had where it was sanctuary. You were like a decent guy there. I know I was. That was my home bar, just like I have a home group, you know? It was my home bar. Billy was a decent guy there. Billy paid his tab. Billy would back up the bartender if there was a fight. Now, other places, they don't want to see Billy again. You know, and I have lots of those stories. And, um, you know, I kept getting arrested for drinking and driving. And I thought AA was some kind of scared straight program. I thought, and I'm sure there's some of you that are, you know, around my age, that back in the 70s, they put this show on TV with all these lifers from Rahway State Prison telling these bunch of young white kids from the suburbs that if they did this, God forbid, this is where they would wind up and... You know, that's what I thought AA was, a crack of garbage, you know. You know, I was here because I need to get out of trouble. I need to show up in front of the judge and get what we call in New York an adjournment on contemplation of dismissal, which is where Billy shows up dressed like this, and he promises, I'm not going to do it again. And if I stay out of trouble for six months, it's all wiped away. And I lived that way for a long time until I got my civil service job and uh, and drank and drank and drank. And... You know, here's the paradox or the hardest paradox in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new tonight, I can tell you the problem I had with AA. Is when, I, when my ass was finally kicked and I finally bottomed out morally, spiritually, mentally, physically, you asked me to stop drinking when I needed to drink the most. And that's a horrible thing to ask somebody like me. On January 5th of 1990, I needed to drink more than I had ever drank in my life. But you were telling me the answer to my problems was to not drink that day. Now, I, uh, not believing in that scared straight yet kind of, you know, program that all you people trying to scare me, um, would come back to AA when my ass was in a jam. 
I want to thank the people of Alcoholics Anonymous who, when I finally came here, didn't say, oh, you're the guy that's just been coming here to get his ass out of a jam. No one said that to me. The hand of AA was extended to me even when I wasn't willing to receive it. You know, and right before I got sober the last time, I went out one night to a Christmas party, got very, very intoxicated, left that Christmas party, stopped in a few bars. It's, it's, it's hard to recall that night because it's hard to recall any night I'm drinking. And, uh, but I, I did get into an accident that night and kill another person drinking and driving. And that accident doesn't make me an alcoholic. And having a bunch of arrests for assault or disorderly conduct doesn't make me an alcoholic. The fact that I've been homeless and I have a fond, fondness for hotels because I know what it's like to walk into hotels and look for room service carts outside doors that have already been eaten because I'm starving and need food and I know what it's like to smoke. I like the sand ashtrays in hotels because those second cigarettes are easier to relight than someone who's stepped on one when you don't have money to buy your, buy your own. I've done all that but none of that makes me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is that I have a physical compulsion in my body that when I have the first drink I need to take the second. And worse than that, more crippling is this godforsaken mind I have that I wake up the next day and look back at the 12 or 15 hours the night before and am comfortable with the five minutes where I was standing on top of the bar singing Born in the USA as someone poured a pitcher of beer over my head and people were clapping that that made it all worth it. Um, you know, I have a, a problem. Um, I have a lot of problems, but one of the... Many problems that I have that's, that hurts and causes a lot of physical pain is that the one muscle that I seem to not lose control of as I'm drinking more is my mouth. So this mouth with a body that can defend itself at 3.30 in the morning is, is recipe for a lot of trouble. And, uh, you know, when I came to AA, I would have told you that I never lost a fight. Well, I'm here to tell you that I've lost plenty. And I found all the tough guys. They're all in AA, you know. I found them all. And, uh, you know, I know what it's like to be lying outside the Blarney Stone, outside the back door, lying on the ground, as some guy's kicking me in the ribs with his steel toe boots because I can't shut my mouth, even lying on the ground getting kicked. I know what it feels like, but yet I want to drink the next day. You know, my high school yearbook had two predictions about me. That hokey little section that I never filled out because I was too cool to do that. You know, what happens in 20 years? And for me, there were two predictions. Billy Ann will have broken every bone and torn every muscle and ligament in his body. And St. John's Hospital will dedicate a wing to Billy Ann. Now, this 17-year-old <laughs> egomaniac thought that that meant Billy Ann was the guy you wanted to party with. Billy was the guy you wanted to go out with. Now, I stand here today. I have a couple of ribs that have been kicked in and broken. I have no left kidney. I have no spleen, stitches. I mean, the list is long. It's very long. What I know today is it was two 17-year-old high school seniors who knew a lot more about my life at age 17 than I did. And, um, you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that last time, I knew where to go. You see, I'm not here to judge while anyone's here, why anyone's here tonight. If you drank before you came here or you're going to drink afterwards, I'd, I'm not powerful enough. The book talks about it. 
I do know this today, that I need three things, a sponsor, a home group, and, and a sobriety date. The continuous sobriety is what this is about. However, I do know that I don't know, only God knows when the seed is going to grow. From 15 to 23, that seed was planted many times by the wonderful, loving people of Alcoholics Anonymous. A month before my 24th birthday, I finally threw up the white flag and went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to. Now, a lot of things happened over the next couple of years. A lot, and a lot happened over the next six months. Lost my job. Got charged with a bunch of serious crimes. Family had enough of me. I mean, I love hearing, you know, as a young alcoholic, which is what I was, not anymore. There's a fine line, and I'd love to know where it is, where those Al-Anon people have it hidden in their literature. But as a young alcoholic, you go from being not allowed out of your house to being not allowed in your house. I don't know where that line is, but it's somewhere in that Al-Anon literature. You know, it's somewhere there. I know it is. It's a very rude awakening for a young alcoholic. Very rude awakening. Um, you know, because I know what it's like to be saying to that operator, oh no, operator, you must, be, you must have called the wrong house. Of course that number accepts collect calls. And the operator says, oh no, it says right here on my screen, do not put any collect calls through. That'll send you down. Even a tough guy like me, that'll put a few tears in your eyes when your mom has cut off collect calls. When your mom has decided no longer is she going to tell you you can't leave, she's going to tell you you can't come back in. And I burned all those bridges. And welcome, if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, this is the Church of Lost Causes, the Temple of Lost Hope. This is where you come when you have no other place to go. One thing I learned, I got sentenced to a year, and I'm not here to defend, or a year and a bunch of years probation, but one of the facilities I was in, um, there was a program where a guy, I happened to be incarcerated during Christmas, and for people who weren't there convicted, who were there because they were um, pending bond or bail, this local businessman would bail out people on Christmas Eve who had $100 cash bail or less. Now, I was sober about mm, 11 months at that time, and one of the things I realized, an interesting little you know, Billy's inmate social uh, exercise was that it's funny who the people are who can't get one person to get them $100 on Christmas Eve. It's us. I saw it. We are the only people who can't find one person to bail us out for 100 bucks on Christmas. And, um, you know, I learned a lot of things. And um, I was talking the other night to someone. I still go into uh, the Cook County Division 14 jail meeting. And... Um, one of the things I'd like to say is that if you think because you've never served a day as an inmate in a correctional facility or because you were never sober in a correctional facility that you don't have something to share with inmate members of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm here to tell you that you're either wrong or you've been lied to because uh, those guys and women want to hear from anyone. I can tell you of listening to a 27 or 28-year-old hardcore gangbanger who told me, that on Thursday nights he walks out to the fence line and he looks for that old station wagon with the 63-year-old woman who's driving into that correctional facility because whether her station wagon comes in or comes out makes or breaks his week because that means whether he gets an AA meeting or not. And she never served a day in her life. And 
you know, I became a member of the Inside Freedom Group, and you know, early on in AA, um, you know, I did my first fourth step in jail, and it wasn't perfect. But as a man, much smarter and better than I've ever said, is that it might be the most important day's work I've ever done. Not because the columns were perfect, not because I had Mr. Brown right, because of this. It was the first time in my life that I was even willing to think that I was responsible for where I was. It was one of the first times that I was even willing to let this thick-headed, stubborn Irish brain realize that if I changed, maybe I wouldn't wind up back here. And um, when I was released, it was the day before my 25th birthday, and um, one, one of the things that had been drilled into my head was that if anything was first besides Alcoholics Anonymous and the recovery program from the first foot I had of freedom, that I would drink again. And that might sound like hardcore advice, but I still give it to people today. That if you've been incarcerated and you get out, your first move has to be recovery. For being incarcerated and losing your liberty, it does certain things to your head. And um, I had just as many chances to get drunk or high inside as I, as I did outside, but I'm glad that AA was the first place I went. And, um, you know, I'm not here to do a step study tonight, and there's some great speakers this weekend. I mean, both Scots tomorrow are, are unbelievable. And uh, But I know this, and, and I had an epiphany one day. There's a thing called Streetwise. They sell it in New York, Chicago. Homeless people sell it. The importance of the third step never hit me so hard as one day when I had a conversation with a streetwise vendor. You see, me and him had the first two steps in our life. He knew that he was powerless over alcohol. And in further talking to him, he knew that probably a power greater than himself could restore him to sanity, just as I did. The only difference between me and him was the decision in the third step. The only. He knew he was powerless. He knew God could solve his problems. For me, I had a problem with what is the care of God. That's a little bit too airy for a guy like me to really comprehend. It was explained Alcoholics Anonymous is the care of God that's been put on the planet for people like me. That's the care of God laid out. And that I was taught, and I know people have lots of different impressions or their take on it. I don't believe God chose me. I believe God chose 66 years ago that there was something missing on this earth to help alcoholics of my type. I believe 66 years ago through divine intervention, a plan of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous was presented on this God's earth. I know that God gives me the choice of whether I avail myself to that plan of recovery or not. This plan of recovery was offered to me at 15 years old. I know that God was watching out for me. I think I give God an easier time. I was making it pretty hard for him when I was drinking. I was giving God a hell of a time to keep me alive. And You know, um, when I got released from jail, I didn't have a place to live. And people in AA took me in. And uh, I became a member of the Midnight Group in New York City. And Midnight might not look like perfect AA, but I assure you lives are saved there. midnight but i'll tell you what there are two midnight meetings in new york city one in the village and one in um times square 
and they're saving lives there. And if someone taught me a long time ago, because I have a bad, bad ego, and I like to think my group's the best, and we have our take on the steps, and it very simply put to me was, Billy, God was at the first AA meeting, and he hasn't missed one since. I've never forgotten that since I've been told it. It's very easy for me to then keep that, you know, my my way or my judgments out of it. And um, a couple of things I want to share, my experience as a recovering alcoholic that changed my life. One, going to my first big book study. Changed my life. Not because the men who did it were on spiritual mountaintops, but because it was obvious that they had taken the time to study the plan of recovery outlined in the book and were familiar with it enough to get it through a hard head like me. Two, when I was in jail, I heard a speaker say on a tape that um, time recovery time in jail doesn't count. I have a resentment problem. A few of us, I'm sure, are familiar with that. And uh, I've always been fascinated that that line says resentment is the number one offender. It kills more of us. It doesn't say it makes us drink. It doesn't say, it just says it kills us. Well, I decided that I didn't like anyone who had a tape. Because how dare they say that I... That my time in jail doesn't count towards being a sober member of AA. Well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. I told you why I was there. Well, one day I walked into the library where our little box of AA tapes that people donate was in this prison. And um, on the top was a tape. It said, Tom I, Aberdeen, North Carolina. And um, for some reason I picked that tape up. And I went back to my cot and I was in minimum at this time and I put my Walkman on and got him dating myself. This is before CDs were even even thought about. I mean, my cassette-only Walkman. And I listened to this man talk about how he had killed two people drinking and driving when he was 23 years old. And now he was over 30 years sober. And it gave me the hope. If you haven't heard the hope yet, you need to go to more meetings. You need to keep going. This A meeting is not the place to work this program outlined in this book. You've got to do that face-to-face with another alcoholic. Meetings are hope shops. It's where you get your hope. Sometimes it's a resentment shop. You know, you know, some, you know, I mean, I'm being honest. That's why I love, I travel a lot for work. Sometimes I appreciate not knowing what the person's going to say before they even raise their hand. You know? I like to be in a room full of people I don't know. And, um, that tape, Tom, I, I'm going to see him next week. Me and him are speaking on the traditions in El Paso, Texas, and I can't wait. Um, but what a gift that was God gave me. And, I was raised with a lot of thought process growing up about who we are, what we are, us, them, blah, blah, blah. Um, Midnight is filled with gay men and women. Shocking, but true. Uh, Shocking for this close-minded 25-year-old recovering alcoholic who wouldn't even sit at a table full of gay people in fellowship because there was no way I'd be seen. What I'm here to tell you, and I'm not here to offend anyone, because um, I can tell my story. My experience with my God is this. I don't always know why things are going on in my life. Sometimes days, weeks, or even years, they're revealed. My brother Terrence was the first person that I know of in in our extended family when I was four and a half years sober to announce to the family that he was gay. It was at that time that I realized why God had me surrounded by all these gay men and women when I first got out of jail. 
because they really did love me and they knew that I hated them because of who they were. And they just kept saying, come back, see you tomorrow. Would you like to chair the Friday night meeting? So by the time that happened with my brother, God had already taught me an important lesson. I knew my job at that time was to be his brother. It didn't matter what, just to be his brother. It's my job. And um, that wouldn't have happened without Alcoholics Anonymous. I can guarantee you that. He did not have an easy road. I like to think that you know God gave AA as his little gift too because to have his oldest brother on his side I think was a little helpful. And, um, you know, my first sponsor out of jail was a black man. And I can assure you that in my home growing up with my dad, I don't know if there ever was a gay or a black man in our house unless they were an undercover cop at some party. But other than that, I'm telling you, that's just the truth. Um, you know, I still consider myself a smoker, but I don't smoke. That's another story. But... Um, I would be smoking two and a half packs of Newports a day with this Marlboro Racing Team baseball hat pulled down over my head, sitting in the back of Chelsea Riverside, which is called Chock Full of Nuts, 69th and Broadway in Manhattan. And um, Chock Full of Nuts is a very interesting meeting because the back of the room, there was a guy in the summer in 90 degree weather dancing, listening to a radio that wasn't playing, wearing a full length fake mink coat. You never knew what you were going to see there. You never knew, but... AA was there and this man Winston reached out to me and this man taught me more about being a man in my early recovery than anybody in my family ever had any male role model I ever had and we used to walk down Broadway him and his Malcolm X cap it was right when the movie came out everybody was wearing those black hats with the white Roman numeral 10 and me with my Notre Dame fighting Irish baseball hat on and we would walk down Broadway from 125th street all the way down the Upper West Side and he shared his wisdom with me. And he listened to me. And he was the first man that I could really cry in front of. And he taught me that for a stubborn, pig-headed, alcoholic like this guy is, how heavy the uncried tear is. I never realized how heavy an uncried tear was. He was the one who taught me that he's seen two kinds of people come into Alcoholics Anonymous. The sad kind and the mad kind. And that it's progress for either of them to become the other. See, I came here mad, pissed off at the world. For me to be able to sit in front of another man and shed a tear or two and actually admit I was sad was huge progress. I mean, I know that sounds... You talk to people outside of us and they're like, so what? Well, I'm telling you folks, for this stubborn Irish Catholic, it was huge to be able to cry in front of this man. And... um. This man's daughter on March 10th of 94 was killed in a triple homicide. She was executed, hogtied, executed with another male and female in a drug-related incident. And at this time, I had this list in the back of my head when it would be okay to drink, when it wouldn't be. And I saw him go through that with dignity and grace. But much even better than that, I went to, that was the first AA funeral awake I went to. And it was at 128th in Amsterdam. And I remember looking around that room and it looked like it was the United Nations. The artists from Soho, the yuppies from the Upper East Side, all the actors from the Upper West Side. It was like an AA Rainbow Coalition. And I just thought to myself, my God, this 
I mean, it really showed me the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I'm the first to say, a lot of bad motives have gotten really good results. And somebody taught me that a long time ago. You know, they said, you know, Billy, nowhere else in the world have bad motives gotten such good results than in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because many times I didn't have the right motive to do anything here. I mean, I still have a meeting, a meeting directory from 1992, New York Intergroup. It has red circles and black circles around meetings. The red circles are meetings that serve cookies and cake. Because I, could, I didn't have money to eat. The other color were for meetings that had lots of women. And the guy who did it told me that if I had a black and a red circle, chances are you'll get your ass there. And you know what? He was right. He was right. Might not have been the right motive, but I'll tell you what. It got my ass at another AA meeting another night. And you know, I heard a guy speak named Slogan Marty, and I, I often want to check if Slogan... In New York City, there's a lot of places where people have nicknames. There's Tommy Trains and Con Eddie and Cowboy Joe and Slogan Marty. Slogan Marty did a demonstration that probably impacted me, and I couldn't believe how simple it was. But what he talked about was complacency. And to him, complacency meant come place your ass in a chair. That there was no room for it in Alcoholics Anonymous. That the, then that there's no such thing as coasting up. He also said that. There's no such thing as coasting up. But then he did a demonstration that to this day is one of the most fascinating things I've seen in an AA meeting. He talked about the power of a wallet and its impact on an alcoholic of my type. You see, because when I came here, I didn't have one. And if I had some, a credit card in there, chances are it was someone else's that didn't know about it, you know? And if there was an ATM card in there, there was probably no money in the ATM account. But what Marty talked about is how easy it is to have nothing and love to come to AA meetings when you've got nowhere to go and no one who wants to go out with you and no social activity of any kind how nice it is to walk into an AA meeting, get a cup of coffee, and have people be nice to you. But the double edge to that is, if you do that long enough, you get a wallet. And it gets a credit card in it. And it gets a couple of dollars in it. And sooner or later, a person like myself is sitting in a chair, and that wallet starts to rub my ass and remind me, you know, Billy, you don't need to be here anymore. You have the money to go out on a date. You have the money to go to a regular movie and not the matinee. I remember that as clear as a day from the day he said it at the Gun Hill Group in the Bronx. Because he's right. How many times did that man's comment make me think, my God, how true he was. How quickly I forget that I have a memory problem. You know, I love the promises, but i got to tell you, for me, the first promise that's most important to me and you know, I have my big book in front of me not because I want to preach, but because it has to remind me that I'm here to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. Otherwise, I could talk about my favorite subject. So, there's a, there's a statement in there um, that I just want to tell you that's a promise to me. And it's the first promise that I saw. It's on page 15. And I saw it because it was pointed out to me by a man who'd been taken through the book, by a man who'd been taken through the book. And it says... For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others... Now that line alone is enough to shock me at any day. Work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. 
Um, that's quite a promise to an alcoholic of my type. Um, that tells me that maybe some people think I'm an activist member of AA. I don't think so. I know I'm a real alcoholic that doesn't want to drink again. I know I'm scared to death of drinking again. I know that I also became a GSR and a DCM. And, uh, you know, I sat there at like 24 and 25 years old. And I'm not saying this to talk about me. I want to give someone hope out there. You know, because you go to these area assemblies and you see, oh, this person's this and this person's that. And, and you think, I could never do that. I could never be that. You know, and I was privileged. I was, you know, three years ago, I was a panel 49 delegate to the General Service Conference, the youngest delegate that year, and it was a privilege. And uh, it all started from being a GSR. And, you know, as somebody said to me, you know, maybe you won't, maybe your gift isn't being a GSR. Maybe it's not speaking. Maybe it's not sponsoring. But the only sin you could commit is not finding out what your gift is in Alcoholics Anonymous. You have one. God gave you one. You just need to find it and, and, you know, and use it. And um, I, um, the low spots ahead, that line's a very tricky line because it's a promise. As I heard someone say, much better than I, this is not Rose Petals Anonymous. This is not you get sober, you go down the yellow brick road, there's a guy behind the curtain, I get to say what I need, he's going to give it to me, my life's solved. The low spots ahead come while sober. And I've hit them. Now, many of them I've hit because I stopped doing what I need to be doing. And I'm not afraid to admit that here. There's a lot of low spots I hit. And you know, when, you, when I run into people who are new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't meet people who are coming here for any kind of like life-changing program. I meet the people coming here for a life-saving program. I've yet to meet someone who says, you know what, Billy, my life was going great. I made some real good changes the last couple of months. And last week I was thinking that, you know, AA would probably be the next right thing. No, I meet people who they've never thought about change in their life. They're still not sure if they want to. And these are some pretty drastic principles to ask people to, you know, think about. But I know that when I get away from the program, I hit a lot of low spots. And I know that um, low spots come too that I have no control over. And I've hit some of them too. And, um, you know, it's funny, you know, I have no nothing to complain about today. And um, believe it or not, I used to sit in the back and I used to make fun of these guys on the Upper East Side who wore suits to work every day and worked for banks and insurance companies and I wear a suit and tie and work for an insurance company today. It's like God's little joke, you know. It's like God really has a sense of humor sometimes. You know, you just sit there and think, God, you know. And then I have to hear some young kid tell me, oh, I didn't even think you had a drinking problem, I see, in a suit. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's like talking to myself. But, you know, I was sitting uh, in a meeting not too long ago, and I'll finish with this so that everyone knows about these low spots. And I'm a speaker at a podium. I'm not a person on a pedestal. And if there's anyone new here, and I'm sure the rest of the speakers would agree with me, when your life is in trouble, as mine has been, there's plenty of times when Ozzy and Zeppelin isn't working, so I have to throw an AA cassette into the car, you know, and that's like, you know, I never throw that in first. I usually put some heavy metal in first, and then I go to the AA tape. 
And uh, but there are certain things in your life that's going to happen where it's going to be the local heroes in your local AA community that are going to people who save you. It's not going to be a speaker coming in on a white horse. And um, my experience, I was driving home from a meeting and I got a call from my sister two years ago and she said, Billy, um, mom has stage 3B lung cancer and has less than a year to live. And, um, you know, I can tell you that honestly, my first thought honestly was that I hate God. I hate God. And um, I wasn't allowed home for the first two, you know, almost three Christmases of my sobriety because I was a detriment to the rest of the family. It was hard for them to be cohesive with me around and you know, I want to warn people of that too, if you're new, you know, um, funny families. My first five Christmases going home with them, they would always be making sure, going to meetings, got a list of meetings you can go to, going to a meeting tonight, you know, like, stay around a little while, then they're like, you got to leave and go to that meeting, you still got to go to them? I mean, they don't understand, they never will, they're not like us, they think, oh, you have 12 years now? Why on Thanksgiving now do you? Because I've been with you all day. That's why. I've been with you all day. You know? But they can't understand that. That doesn't make sense to them, you know? Um, but losing my mother was a hard blow. See, because like some other male alcoholics I know, see, I sympathize with my dad. And I didn't get along with my mother for a long time. And I hated her for making him leave. And it took me a long time to get a relationship back with her. And, um, you know, some great advice you get from men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the advice I received was no regrets. Do not let her die and have regrets. Do not think I should have taken this day off. I should have did this. I should have did that. Just do it. Go broke. Get a second job after she dies. Doesn't matter. Don't have regrets. I've lived my life in regret. I've lived my life double and triple checking what I've done in the past. And you know, and I can honestly tell you that I have no regrets. I miss my mom. I can tell you honestly that this tough guy was driving down the road and I bought this tape and I didn't realize a song was on there and I had to pull off in the road, bent over, crying, reminded me of my mother. But I want to tell you what the people AA did for me. You see, the 12 steps, I sometimes go to step meetings and I hear people talk about the 11th step and conscious contact with God. Well, I'm glad someone explained to me that it's hard to do that if you haven't done the steps before. That that conscious contact is a lot easier if you've removed a lot of the garbage through the inventory and amends process. And I know myself that when my conscious contact is not good, it usually means that I'm, I need to be writing. And, um, you know, when my mom passed away, I've been given a lot of great things in AA and in my life. I've held some nice positions in Alcoholics Anonymous, so they say. I've spoken at a few conventions. In 1995 in San Diego at the International Convention, I spoke at the Young People's Meeting. But I can tell you that without a doubt, the biggest privilege of podium for me to stand behind was to give the eulogy at my mother's funeral and to open it up by saying 
how difficult it was for this far from perfect son to pay tribute for a so close to perfect mother. And just five weeks before I gave that eulogy, what did Alcoholics Anonymous give me? I'll tell you the biggest gift to date I've been given. Christmas Eve, I left my mother's room in her hospice after decorating it with my siblings for Christmas. Because the next day we invited some relatives there and we're going to have her Irish music and her God knows whatever she wanted, you know? And um, that night, I wrapped my mother's last Christmas gift and it was very, very difficult. And I watched my siblings and their significant others drink and um, I knew that I didn't want to pick up a drink. I know today that maybe it'll race that night, but you know... Um, what a gift it was to open up my laptop on my mother's kitchen table that night and to see emails from people in recovery saying, Billy, how's your Christmas? How's things going with my mom? Thinking about you. To get voicemail messages, you know? You know, and um, the next morning to be sober and to get up at 7.30 in the morning and to take her wig and her trolley perfume and God knows what else and do my best to put on her makeup and whatever else and I said to myself, guys, I was thinking to myself, boy, the guys at midnight would love to be seeing me doing this now, you know? And uh, throwing back a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee with my mother in her bed and making some final plans and um, having the greatest Christmas that my God's ever given me. And um, funny thing at my mother's casket, not that that was funny, but who were the people online now, I haven't gotten sober, gone to meetings regularly there for a long time. The guy who drives me crazy and plays cards in the back of the club. You know, all the local heroes, all the people that might drive you crazy, but showed up to make sure I was okay. And that's my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, that this is, you know, a people program, that the program laid out in this book, you know... Um, I'm one of those people who was sorry to see that the circle and triangle left the book. It used to be in there. Because I strongly believe that this is a three, you know, part recovery program. And that unity, service, and recovery are equal. And that when I'm lacking in one, I'm not taking, I'm taking advantage of one or two of a three part program. And that'll never help me. Um, but I also know today that when I am taking advantage of all three sides, and when I'm doing just a little bit more than thinking about myself, that life is pretty good. And an old crazy lady at midnight told me a long time ago that there's a big difference between God and Billy. And that's that God doesn't sit around wondering what it's like to be me all day. He just doesn't, you know? He doesn't do that, you know? He never does that. I find reason to do that all the time, to wonder what it's like to be Him, you know? And, and I um, end with telling you this. That I said I have a memory program problem and I also have a rowing problem. And I say I have a rowing problem because of an old story a lady at midnight always told. Because she said that God steers and we row. And she used to always say that our problem is that we get tired of rowing. And that sooner or later, a guy like Billy turns around and says to God, you know what, God, to tell you the truth, I'm sick of rowing. Why don't you let me steer this thing for a little while? And she said that God would always have the same answer to me, which was, Billy, you can steer all you want, but God don't row. And what that taught me, what that taught me 
through many trials and tribulations of steering this boat is that it goes around in circles. Because my job is to do the footwork. You can't pray on your knees to get a job if you're not filling out applications. You can't get rid of a toothache if you don't go to a dentist. That God has put certain things on this planet for us to take advantage of. Sponsorship, the program, being active in service, having a home group. But that it's a choice you have to take. And that this is an action-based program. And, um, you know, I hope Bobby gets a chance to come back here next year. Um, you know, this is short notice to come here. And um, it's funny, I see Scott sitting here. And Scott relayed something to me from that same person who said some great things. Is uh, Scott related to me like this last year. Um, you know, if, if you're having trouble or things are going tough, Maybe you need to do something else, I think, besides, you know, I need to do something else besides AA, or I need to, and someone that we both respect told him something that I've remembered and wrote it down since he told me that in the lobby of the Music City Roundup, which is this person that told him of all the problems he's ever had, cutting back on AA has never been a solution to any of them. And I need to remember that today, that no matter what's going on, cutting back on Alcoholics Anonymous and helping another fellow alcoholic has never been a solution and I can go to sleep comfortably in my own skin tonight. That boy that I killed that was a year younger than me, there's a lot of ways I make amends for that. I've spoken to high schools with his mother on the same stage as me. His dad will not accept my amends. I have to keep that on my A-step list. I do work for other organizations besides AA as a living amends to try and um, make up for what I did. But... If you think you've done something that's so bad that you don't think you can recover an Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm here to tell you that you haven't shared it in enough meetings and found someone that's been down that exact path and has found a way to live comfortably in their own skin. That's all I got. Thanks.